Hello, and welcome to Meta Perspective with Matt and Andy, the show exploring how to think, act, and be in an uncertain and complex world. This is episode number five. Whether you're new here or you're returning, Andy and I appreciate you being on this conversational journey with us as it continues to unfold. So where did we get to last time? And what can you expect from this episode? Well, in the last episode, we were discussing our sense of self and how the world we're in, the arena, plays a role in shaping and influencing not only how we see ourselves, but also the ways we interact and participate in it. We ended by considering whether there's a need for us as individuals, as agents, to increase our awareness of how we're living in order to fend off the many forces in the arena that seek to influence our thinking and behavior. And if doing so would help us to develop a greater sense of agency in service of what truly matters to us. So the focus last time was all about our sense of self and how that's affected in the world. This time we're venturing beyond that and exploring sense-making. How we make sense not just of ourselves, but of other people, other ways of seeing the world and our environment in general. As always, if you'd like to reach out, send us an email to hello at metaperspective.io to continue the conversation. Our contact details are in the show notes of your podcasting app and on our website. Right, let's jump into the show and I'll see you on the other end. So I think in the last couple of episodes, I've been trying to do a brief summation of every episode to just kind of keep us on track and help people understand where we are. In our last conversation, we were really looking at how an agent, how we as agents in the world are adapting to a very shifting and changing arena. And in many different ways, we were looking at the effects that has on us as people and as well as being able to adapt to a very changing world, which we're calling the arena. We were also talking about maladaption and how you can actually adapt to a world in a way that is damaging to yourself. And we were exploring some of the effects of the arena on the agent. And one of the interesting things for me, one of the highlights that came up is we were talking about how we see the world through metaphors. And in a previous episode that we had, actually two episodes ago now, we were talking about industrial thinking, thinking that is a legacy of the industrial revolution. And how that really led to amongst many other variables and factors, a mechanized way of looking at the world. And people saw the world through this kind of metaphor of the machine, and they projected that onto their universe and onto their lives. But it also created a mirror with which we looked at ourselves as machines, and we turned that metaphor back on ourselves. And now I'm hearing in popular discourse in the arena, people starting to use informational metaphors to describe our world and to project meaning and sense-making onto our environment. And in the last episode, I remember I brought up this idea of if we're talking about our culture as software or source code, or even ourselves as having software that needs to be updated and iterated, what is the effect of that on us as people? In the same way as what was the effect of thinking about everything as being mechanized, what effect did that have on human beings? Like One way to look at that is saying, well, looking at things as machines really dehumanized us as people and stripped out our humanity and didn't allow us to see the whole human picture. And now we're looking at ourselves, we're using metaphors along the lines of software and source code to try and 
get to grips with the world at large. And I think that that's actually useful in general to use these metaphors to make sense of the world. But I'm curious about what could be the negative effects of only seeing ourselves through this informational metaphor in terms of making sense of the world. One of the places where my mind goes to is I'm wary of the ideas of saying programmed and deprogrammed or decoding all of these ways of thinking. I'm sure they are useful in many respects, but to us as agents, I think we want to discuss and be aware of how those informational metaphors enable us to make sense of the world on one hand, but also maybe have side effects that we need to be wary of. So I know that's a long introduction, Andy, but maybe we could start in that world. Wow, that's that's deep. But I think you're absolutely right to draw this up. This is something we've been exploring over the last several episodes, is, is this co-creation that occurs between ourselves and the arena. And as you rightly point out, part of that co-creation is the is the language of which we understand the world, the metaphors that then are used to describe that and the way that we internalize those metaphors to try and make sense of ourselves. As you say, the human being as machine, meat machine, if you like, and now we're moving into this information age that we're often talked about sort of wetware. (laughs) The brain is wetware. And there is some truth to all of these things in part you know our body is a mechanism it's got bones and muscles and organs that pump blood and hormones and move the body in mechanical ways so there's something of the mechanical metaphor that is true but insufficient and now we're layering onto that the informational one and as we look into the workings of neurons and brain areas, we're starting to see that there is some truth around the fact that information is being processed. But I think you were pointing to this in in, in your question, that is this metaphor complete or useful but insufficient? And I think one of the, the good things about the information metaphor is that it does bring into play the idea that perception brings in signals from the outside world through our various senses. It does get processed in through some form of sense-making, often sort of married to experience and coupled and passed through our appetites and desires and our cognitive apparatus in in which either conscious or often unconscious decisions are, are being made. And there is something of information processing obviously going on through that. The use of metaphor, I think, is problematic, especially in the context at which we understand software today, which is basically that software is programmed, programmed run routines. And when you run routines, there are certain things that pop out the end of that that constitute what the software is trying to do. And so if you unpack that a little bit, the use of software in that sense gives almost an impression that somehow our sense of selves is just the outcome of some predetermined code that's built into our brains and we just are the last people to know, if you like, (laughs) about what internal processing is already predetermined, so to speak. So 
our, our awareness, our sense of selves as just the outcome of some predetermined software routines running within our brains. And that, I think, is quite a dehumanizing way of trying to make sense of our experience. It's almost gives the sense of a kind of fatality. We're just the sum total of the software routines running in our head that lead us to think and feel the way that we do. And I think there's a lot more to the felt sense of what it is to be someone that's more than just the result of software running in the background. There's a a real felt sense that we live life much more holistically. We sense and see and feel a, a sense of agency writ large as we encounter the world. There are multiple relationships, there are multiple things going on, and we navigate through that, not simply blindly following routines, software routines, but sensing and engaging and feeling and having a sense of free will, even if a lot of the choices may be in reality quite restricted. We have this sense that we're in control, certainly of of many of our conscious actions and our choices, what we say, what we do, where we go. And this feels very much as though we are someone who has sovereignty, someone who has agency of their own life. There is something in the conscious feeling of being alive that we are in control, not that software is running us. And I think one of the dangers of the information software metaphor is that it has this kind of almost fatalistic sense that we're running off predetermined routines. And and I think that can be quite disempowering. And also, I think, focuses on the material aspect of consciousness. We touched on this before, that there are two ways of thinking about consciousness. One is from looking at neurons and, and neurons firing and how the the coordination of that within the brain can be seen as a kind of bottom-up materialistic process. But I can put your brain in a scanner and put someone in front of you that you deeply love, and I can point to bits of the brain that light up and say, look, there's the information processing going on. I can see it in the brain. These bits are lighting up. Uh, There might be some oxytocin thrown in there for good measure. But peering into the brain lighting up in the particular way that it does will give me no insight whatsoever as to what it feels like for you when you encounter the person you love. The feelings that you feel, the images that come to mind, the memories that are stimulated, the sense of awe, wonder, potential, all of those things that fully express what it is to be in love cannot be captured in the information processing. There's something extra to being alive, to being a conscious, feeling person that software can never quite get to in its explanation. So it drags the sense of what it is to be human, what it is to feel, to live, to love. The whole drama of human experience is, if you like, one level abstracted up from the software metaphor, it can't really get a grip on it. So the danger for me when I think about informational metaphors, because you can use them on yourself, you can use them on the arena and society writ large, you can project the idea of 
culture being software, having distributed cognition between different people as being all part of this way of seeing a network society. There's just so many different ways you can project that metaphor onto culture and society. I think the danger comes mostly when you're projecting that software metaphor onto other individual human beings. Because when you do that and you're looking at the world as software, and you see people as being able to be programmed and deprogrammed and changed, you are diminishing the divine spark of humanity within an individual human being. So when you project outwards onto the world and you say, okay, this person's got malware, this person is clearly not thinking properly because they haven't adjusted their software. If you start thinking like that and then you're in positions of leadership where you're thinking, okay, well, we need to iterate here and we need to update this software there. Like you were saying in the way that you were describing only being able to see a brain scan rather than human experience, you're doing the same thing. You're not accounting for the fact that this metaphor is limited in its functionality. It is useful in certain respects, but if you only live by that metaphor, you are stunting your ability to sense make and see the world. On the flip side, I like looking at the flip side because I do think that this, this way of thinking is useful. When you start thinking about yourself in terms of maybe the software that you've got in your head and in your mind and in a way that you want to iterate and improve yourself and improve things around you, I think that that can be useful. And I think that even looking at culture at large and understanding we need to improve these processes and these, I want to say mechanisms, which is using an older metaphor, they can be useful, but only if they're understood to be limited in the fact that they can't capture and express our full humanity. So I wonder if you can help me dig out that part where actually looking at software in ourselves or looking at using informational metaphors to almost self-transcend, to improve, to be more than what we are now because we're progressing towards something we want to be. Maybe there's something useful as long as we understand that it can't capture the full human experience. Yes, I think you're absolutely right there. As we said, the mechanical is necessary, but not sufficient. I think the informational is also adding a lot of richness into our understanding, but again, it's not sufficient to capture the full human experience. And one of the interesting things, as we understand more about the natural world, is the degree to which patterns are everywhere, patterns as they manifest within systems systems within systems, if you like. And there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that the complexity of life and then culture as an added abstraction on top of the complex physical specimens that we are, are very much tied to patterns. And patterns do have some interesting properties around how information is processed, shared, and utilized. So there is something that information and software thinking can add to understanding and trying to sort of crack some of the code. Let's use that metaphor again. (laughs) As to why certain things happen in culture and certain things don't and what seems to work better and what doesn't. But as you rightly point out, it doesn't capture the full lived experience of being inside a culture and feeling what it's like to have these things happen around you. I was very struck by, I think it was a philosopher, Roger Scruton, who was talking about this in in the context of religion. He was saying, you you can look at a a particular culture, 
religious culture. And you can take the perspective of the anthropologist, which kind of hovers above and looks down and sees all the rituals and the things that people do. And you can describe the religion from the perspective of the patterns and the software, if you like, of what's going on. But that perspective will never get you to the position of what it feels like to believe, to feel the power of something. Maybe it's your transcendent God, the way that it fills the soul, fills the heart, fills the spirit, motivates you to go beyond yourself, to do these things, maybe in collaboration with others, whether it's through ritual, a sense of transcendence that gives you, which then enables you collectively to come together in felt senses that are tightly bonded so that you as a collective can do these things together. And with these felt sense of what it's like to engage with others in these cultural practices can never be captured by the anthropologist's gaze because he's looking from without. He's just seeing things happen without understanding what it feels like to participate in that. And as we take that distinction and apply it more widely to the world that we live in now, there is a sense that if we apply the physical or the mechanical or the software lens too tightly, we see people as objects to be manipulated. Culture as being something that we can inject some code, change the patterns, and somehow delightful outcomes can be provided without considering what it feels like to participate in a culture that is like this or like that, or what is it that really truly motivates and empowers and builds people both individually and collectively, and how we're missing that insight to inform what we could do, especially people involved with more sort of authority and influence in shaping institutions and culture and the arena, to shape it in ways that are sensitive to the felt experience of what it's like to live within any particular cultural frame. And whether you call it spiritual, whether you call it human, humanistic or human-centered, this dimension, I think, is really called for as we start to think about how we evolve our agent arena moving forward to overcome those problems of alienation, to fully engage people in ways that feel right, as well as from on on high being seen to be beneficial to a mechanistic or informational philosophy that has people as objects and agents to be sort of controlled or manipulated. So I think there's extreme value in this area that we're talking about now, the felt sense as well as the informational and pattern sense need to be co-created or co-understood, I think, for our own benefit, but also for those involved in, in shaping the arena in which we inhabit. The informational lens can start to help us to see and recognize patterns of behavior, of outcomes that might point to ones that are more or less beneficial. (laughs) So we can certainly see ones that aren't and avoid those and move to ones that maybe are. But if we're going to really put some meat on those bones and create something that is analogous to a world that we would love to inhabit, 
speaks to our full sense of our felt experience of being alive and thriving, as we said, individually and collectively, then what does it feel like? What is the felt experience? We need to be much more aware of what that is to understand the directions in which we could go, which we could avoid, so that we can understand the human side, the human felt lived experience, as well as understanding the more informational driven patterns of how we act out in life. And think about how we can combine those two perspectives together to co-create something that's much more uh, beneficial for individuals and the collective. So I think humanizing society, let's put it that way, humanizing how we think about how we evolve and change the world, the arena that we live in, the institutions that we inhabit, bringing that human felt sense into the room as a perspective to consider and think about, I think is really, really important for us collectively. We've come so far with our mechanical world thinking. It's given us amazing tools and the ability to build many of the things we see around us. Our informational age is giving us the ability to understand how to process information and knowledge to turn our fixed world into something akin to services, <laughs> the sort of servitization, if you like, of the world. But if we're going to turn that servitization into something that really nourishes us as humans. We have to bring the human experience and an understanding of that into that perception such that we can create through our next iteration of technology as it pervades the world more more deeply something that speaks to the human. And that that's the bit I think that's so important for this time in history. A couple of episodes ago, we were talking about how industrial thinking and a mechanized worldview ultimately led in our world to having businesses serving people by having numbers on spreadsheets. We were calling it metricization, only looking at specific numbers and actually discarding the humanity of a person. And I don't see how looking at the world of software actually combats that. In fact, it makes it more likely that if we keep using this software or source code analogy, we move from numbers on a spreadsheet to pawns that can be moved around a table. I think that line of thinking, as you were saying about objects to be manipulated, doesn't solve the problem that we inherited necessarily from the industrial legacy, that industrial way of thinking. However, one of the things that I think grounds this is metaphors are useful but limited. And they're a part of our sense-making toolkit. So one of the things that I find really, really fascinating that we, we should definitely do more about this at some point is whether it's thinking about things as machines or as software, we as human beings invent tools. We invented tools in the Industrial Revolution. We are inventing tools now in this information age. And through the tools we make, we create metaphors with which we project sense onto the world in order to make sense of it. So what we create leads to metaphors that enable us to make sense of the world. And to a certain degree, they are very useful. But what happened last time round is that we didn't take into account their limitations. So this time round, when we're talking and using this vocabulary, I think it's fine to use these words and to think about things in these ways. But we have to have that healthy dose of scepticism and understanding its limitation. Because this metaphor 
is in itself a tool. It's a tool through which we can make sense of the world. And it's super useful in this time where actually it feels like as a person in the arena, it's really hard to make sense of the world. But if we start with ourselves and we look at ourselves as agents and we use this metaphor of information and software, we need to understand we aren't just blank slates to be programmed as culture and as the arena wants us to be. And I think that a lot of us know that, but maybe we doubt that sometimes. I think that leads to a lot of psychological aspects of living in the arena that give us a sense of anxiety. We question ourselves. To what extent are we programmed to think certain things? To what extent should we deprogram ourselves? And for us to even begin to contemplate things on an arenic level, even if that's a word I'm making it up as I go, on an arenic level, we need to be able to look into ourselves and say, hey, I'm not a blank slate to be programmed. And then use that to project out onto other people and say, well, nor is anyone else. These things can't capture our fullness. Therefore, it would be foolish for me to look at the arena or to look at culture or to look at my neighbor in a way that treats another person like that. Yeah, you raised some really interesting points there. And I think this is a really interesting area to explore. I think just before we go into the agent psychology, I think one interesting thing to think about when we think about the development of human society. We've developed physical tools to enable us to do more than we could do with our bare hands. So whether it was invent stone tools or axes or weapons or tools to make things with, we've increased our agency and power through the ability to leverage our human capabilities to a wider and greater extent. So we've been able to build amazing things, cities, bridges, infrastructure, factories, all of those things with our physical tools. And we've had the psychotechnologies, those kind of ways of thinking that allows us to augment the power through symbols and metaphors. We can look beyond that which is in front of our eyes to talk about ideas and ideas about ideas and philosophy and to make sense of the world beyond our uh, immediate gaze. But I think in the evolution of tools, and this is what one thing I think really interesting, is a sense in which the evolution of tools were evolved by individuals, usually, and individuals and small collectives to augment and enhance what we could do. And there was a sense in which innovation was something we did that had practical and valuable use that we could feel and experience, coming back to this kind of felt sense of being able to do things more than we could to get better outcomes that served us. And As we went through the Industrial Revolution and beyond up to now, what we've created is institutions, as we've talked about before, who can more efficiently make things. And more of the innovation has come from institutions now, not from individuals who are trying to augment and enhance the experience of living for the benefit of individuals and communities, but from institutions who have taken the reins of making things and providing things and are now looking to innovate on our behalf. But what's quite interesting is that innovating on a behalf is not authentically embedded in extending and evolving the human experience. It's what can we invent that we could make money from, (laughs) which might tangentially or orthogonally, it's another way, fancy word of saying it, give us some enhancement, but it's done to serve primarily the interests of the institution. So now we've got a slight tension that evolving new products and services and new tools is being done now in the interest of the institutions who are making them, 
with a sense that it could be useful for us as well. And it's enough of a use to be able to sell it to us, but it's no longer rooted in the project of improving our felt experience. And as we move into the information age, that same mindset is now being applied to information and information about us and our behaviors is now being used to mine us for our frailties and our predispositions to convince us to want things that probably don't enhance our well-being, but we can be persuaded that they do. So it's being used back against us. So what we've done is flipped on its head the creation of tools for our own well-being to the creation of tools that service the needs and interests of institutions that may or may not be in our interest. And in order to get us to use them, (laughs) information is being used back against us. So we've got arguably this decoupling of the new tools being created in terms of are they really embedded in a true driving force of improving individual and collective well-being? I think we could probably say that's no longer true. And we live in this this kind of tense age, as we've explored before, where there is this decoupling, this alienation, the sense that I'm not able to make sense and I don't feel the world is a, a place that I feel I can see my future in a secure and coherent way, and hence the rise of mental health issues, the discomfort we're all feeling and the political fallouts and the crises that are bubbling up across the Western world as we see. But coming back to we're not a blank slate, it's true. And this is, again, where evolutionary psychology is quite interesting. If we have evolved, certainly for hundreds of thousands of years, as proto-humans, and one could argue, as many do, that if we've evolved before that millions of years further back, Jordan Peterson talks about lobsters and serotonin in the brain and hierarchies and all the rest of it, conscious organisms who are able to be aware and make choices have evolved over millions of years to seek out things that are advantageous to them and avoid things that are not both within the natural world that they inhabit, but also to seek out and participate in behaviours with others that nourish and support and cultivate social relationships where the whole is greater than the sum of the part and the survival of the species can propagate. And humans have come up through that tribal lineage where invested within us are deep instincts and desires for connection, for love, for empathy, for bonding with others in in ways that are mutually beneficial. So we're not a blank slate, and we now know that. We come with a set of predispositions born out of history, forged in the fire of hundreds of thousands of years, possibly millions of years of evolution. And we now find ourselves in a modern world surrounded by an arena and a set of tools and a set of expectations cultivated by that arena that calls upon us to act and behave in ways that are quite some distance away from that which we've evolved. And so there's always going to be a tension in there. One of the amazing things about the human brain is its ability to adapt to novel situations and to be able through knowledge, symbolism, metaphor, and and the cognitive functions of our brain to sort of 
recast ourselves and our understanding in novel environments and being able to adjust to that. Yet the call of these deeper instincts, these deeper dispositions bequeathed to us by evolutionary history are still there, this desire to feel appreciated. The importance of dignity and self-esteem and these things are deeply woven into the to the fabric of what it is to be a human. And these are the things that we need to make sure that we're not riding roughshod over in our rush to create a logical, information-driven world that sees everyone as objects. There's a sense in which that is being overwritten in some places. And the discomfort and unease and the alienation we've talked about before is in part because there is something essentially human and what it is to be human that's encoded in our very essence that hasn't found the ability to be expressed or acknowledged fully in the world that we're creating around us. And I think that's another way of saying that it's time, I think, now to be curious and seek to understand what that human dimension is so that both within ourselves we have a better means of making sense of the world and how we engage and encounter the world through the core sense of dispositions that we have and our ability to make sense and how we reconcile into something that works for us, but while at the same time acknowledging and recognizing these important fundamental essences of what it is to be human that can be designed into the arena that we're building that acknowledges and respects that. And I think it starts with us as individuals, ultimately. And it's looking at the narratives and the metaphors that we're using, projecting onto ourselves and each other and actually rejecting the narrative a lot of the time and saying, I will take responsibility for myself. I'm going to take the reins of my own life and I'm going to put myself out there in the world in a way where I understand that I want to increase my sense of agency. I want to increase the amount that we said it on the last episode that I can participate in the arena so that things can be in service of us in service of humanity rather than just being dictated to us if you look at technology and say well is technology in service to us right now like let's take social media is that in service to us living agentic lives empowering lives where we're achieving what we want to achieve we're growing we're progressing we're doing what we want to do with our lives or is it actually not is it a symbiotic relationship Or is it parasitic? What is the relationship you have with technology? And we can talk a lot about how the arena should change to help people to navigate and to become more empowered, more agentic, let's say. But for us right now, we can do something. We can change how we interact with the technology around us. We can change how we interact with our arena by rejecting the narrative, rejecting that we are objects to be manipulated and obviously that's not an explicit narrative it's not like everyone's walking around thinking oh that, that's the situation but for me it almost feels like it's an unconscious one it's implicit somehow and I also think that the, the main reason why this is happening so much is because of the shifting arena the fact that so much is changing so quickly that it's hard to even grasp and make sense of reality which is the very reason why we use these metaphors in the first place because we're trying to make sense of our environment and trying to navigate it. Exactly. We, We do live, as we've talked about many times, in an era of greater complexity where we see more of the world than we've ever done before through our 
various screens and media channels. We are seeing accelerating technology, more people around the world connected. Everything is more complex. And with our sort of evolved brains and evolved psyches, as we talked about just now, that there is a sense in which what our evolution has bequeathed us is not up to the task of what's in front of us. <laughs> so there's work that we need to do if we're not to find ourselves stumbling around completely lost in a world, being triggered left, right and centre. <laughs> and one way I could describe this is that and there's a lot we could depth we could go into, so this is very superficial, is what some of the practices of the East have taught us is that in order to engage the world in a more centred, wise, calm way, is that we need to do work on ourselves to understand ourselves such that usually through the practices and arts of meditation, to kind of observe one's own feelings, thoughts and desires as they arise, to not feel that you're being, if you like, triggered and carried away by your own internal desires and emotions that can easily get triggered. So how can we get a better control of ourselves, the sort of internal reflection that comes from meditation, while at, at the same time embracing a lot of the, the wisdom of the West, which is about the external world. How do we contemplate, look across, span across what's out there to better understand the forces that are out there, the, the games they're playing, the ways in which we're being attempted to be manipulated or given information that may or may not be complete. So how do we make sense of the world out there and how do we make sense of ourselves internally? Because if we can better understand ourselves to be more agentically centred about how I feel, how I act, and I can better contemplate and understand the world as it is, those two pieces together give me the opportunity to start thinking or finding my own sovereignty and agency without feeling that either I'm being controlled by my inner demons and fears or I'm having my strings pulled by the arena outside. And that really calls for us to do work on ourselves. And I was really fascinated by some of the work being done by a philosopher, Forrest Landry. And I think I'm right in describing this way. I may be wrong, but he was talking about almost like there are three levels of perception. So you know, we wake up, we walk around the world, we we will award attention to certain things. We can talk about value. What do we value? Our value drives what we attend to. What we attend to then drives what we perceive. So there's kind of raw perception of what we see, what we read, how we react to what someone said that will cause some kind of reaction in us. The sense-making hits the raw processing that we have, coming back to that information metaphor, <laughs> And there will be a first response, a kind of triggering of something. And we can live in that world, but it's quite an unstable place to be, especially given the fact that there are many things out there in the world that we either don't understand or can be quite triggering. So the, the first level of perception is just being aware and taking in. What do we attend to? What do we take in? What's our initial response? 
The second level of perception is starting to go down the sort of meditational route or the stoic route, which is to perceive your own perceptions, to almost abstract yourself one layer up and, and notice the feelings that I get, the sense of being triggered or what I seem to desire and want, and reflect on that to start to get the sense of what is working well for me, what is not. Why am I behaving like that? Why do I get triggered by this? Am I overreacting? What has caused me to react in that particular way? Is there work I need to do to understand myself? And why do I come to that feeling? And, and start to challenge it and look at yourself. And then the ultimate, if you were to get into sort of pure Zen and Nirvana, is another layer of abstraction, which is to be able to observe yourself observing your perceptions, which is almost like the transcendent full nirvana, which is where the full centered calm and wisdom, you've kind of almost abstracted yourself away and above the turmoil of your mind to observe your own sense making. Now, of course, getting to that level requires quite a lot of work, but certainly the second level I think is really important. So what stoicism basically speaks to is ensuring that whatever internal appetites and desires or whatever triggering signals come from the external environment, that I'm not cast to sea in a storm of my own anger and rage or my own triggered reactions to what's going on out there politically or what I've been called upon to consider buying to drive my identity so that people will like me and respect me or fancy me or whatever other rubbish is being injected into my head. Just to be aware of that, to challenge that, to think about that, to grasp back from all of these forces, both internal and external, a sense of agency for myself, that I can come to start to see my weaknesses, see my strengths, and be able to coordinate those into something akin to a whole sovereign self from which to step forward and engage with the world. And I think that's quite an interesting and important requirement, I think, for many of us, if not all of us, to try to undertake, if not to be carried away by that from the arena, which is tugging at our strings and for our own evolved reactions that can sometimes overwhelm us in response to these kind of triggers. So I offer that as a, a way into this that I think could be quite useful. Yeah, both external and internal forces to try mm. and build sovereignty of yourself and mastery of yourself in order to be able to consciously participate in the arena rather than unconsciously yeah. and being kind of dragged along for the ride. Because there's two forces you have to compete with. There's your inner self, there's your emotions, there's a way that you actually experience the world, which is being thrown out of sorts by the arena anyway, but just in life, life is complicated. So obviously you have to battle those internal forces, but then you have the external world, the arena that you want to participate in, in order to have a sense of meaning and an engaged life. And that's also going to be wanting to try and shape you and do things to you that you might not be aware of. And all of a sudden I've said all of that and it feels super, super overwhelming. And, you know, at some point in this conversation, we want to talk about why it's so hard to make sense of the world right now and how the arena is doing that. But just as an immediate takeaway, being able to build sovereignty for yourself, let's try and break that down so it's a little bit easier to grasp what we're saying. Become aware, pay attention to 
yourself, your habits, your behaviors, how you interact with mm. society, with your tools, with your job. Bring in a level of awareness to that in whatever way that you feel like you can do it. Me personally, I, I actually really enjoy journaling as a way of bringing attention to myself, observing our habits and behaviors and choosing consciously the habits and behaviors that we feel are beneficial to ourselves as an immediate starting point to the feeling of overwhelm that someone can feel in a world that's hard to make sense of. I think you're right. That is something that we can think about today. There's something that we can yeah. take away right this second and say, okay, when we say build sovereignty, I want to become more empowered and in control of how I navigate an uncertain and complex world. Yeah. Let's take the internal forces because there's something really interesting from the work of, certainly from Freud and then uh, subsequently Jung that I found quite interesting. And again, there's a lot of depth to this. So we're skating across the surface of some really deep topics. When you get triggered, for example, you might get angry, might get jealous, you might become resentful. And these can be talked about as emotions. But what Carl Jung was very insightful to note is that these aren't just a feeling. They summon up from within you almost like a sub-personality, a full sub-personality. So if you're triggered and you get angry and you contemplate the angry you, it's not just a feeling. The way that you see the world when you're angry is very different. The words that you use are different. The way that you judge things, the way you make decisions and calculations when you're angry, the actions that you subsequently take, the angry you is almost like another you, the asshole you, <laughs> that when given full sway can wreak havoc, do damage to those that you love, to things around you. And with our new technologies, if I take my anger onto Twitter and you know, vomit my vitriol into the information sphere, <laughs> I am now using a, a sub-personality within myself to contribute to the general harm and pollution of the information space. So whether it's negative personality one could think of like envy anger and not to say that it's not right to be angry but that angry self if not observed understood and integrated into my whole self can be like a loose cannon that comes out that contributes to my own instability harms people around me and contributes to an overall, well, certainly in a social media world, pollution of the information ecology. So one of the things I try to do is observe what makes me angry. Because when I reflect upon my own anger, I can see what sorts of things trigger the anger, what sorts of contexts and lead up happens to things that make me angry. Can I now recognize in advance the things that are tending towards a situation that are going to lead me to be angry? And can I now start with that knowledge to both minimize the chance that I will enter into a situation where anger is going to be unhelpful? And when I am angry, can I now observe my own anger and undertake some behaviors, maybe it's two or three deep breaths before I say anything, <laughs> to buttress against that part of myself. And 
a cognitive decision that I've made, for example, is that systems like Twitter can be a space where I can see something react and act with anger and lash out. If I lash out, I may feel a momentary sense of pleasure at having offloaded something that I felt irritated me. But I've now created a trigger for someone else out there in the information sphere. So I've personally taken the decision that I will not use Twitter as a platform for outrage because my outrage is simply feeding my own anger personality and potentially triggering other people. And if we collectively look at us all doing that, what we see writ large in a lot of social media is lots of outrage, lots of triggering, and we just go into a vicious circle where, as we've talked about before, outrage is what social media loves to share because more people view it and share it. And what we get is a tidal wave of outrage that swirls around the world stirring and triggering everyone a stage further. So we enter into, in acting out my anger through social media, I end up contributing to a a wave of anger that sweeps around the world that just triggers everyone else. So how might I do the opposite of that? How might I not respond with anger, but instead, and this is part of the thinking process, is what led to the situation that caused me to be angry. Usually it's another person or another organisation or institution. What led them to say the thing that they did? What beliefs did they hold that led them to come to the conclusion that led them to say the things that they did? Am I able, through my sense of looking at the signal through the noise, (laughs) able to see the original cause of what led to that person to think the thing they did that led them to said the thing they did that then triggered me and rather engage it with anger with anger can I go right back to the source of that and engage with that person on where that misunderstanding or misalignment originated such that I can resolve or have the opportunity to understand and resolve issues at a more fundamental level So reflecting rather than reacting could lead to a multitude of different approaches that ultimately are going to reduce the amount of ill intent and bad will, if you like, being sort of vomited into the world and offers the opportunity for helping people and nurturing relationships to reconcile and build common understanding, to start to address some of the causes of misunderstanding and aggravation that exist. So I think these are also working with oneself and also using that knowledge to excavate and understand the source of disagreements and conflict to open up the possibility for reconciliation at a more fundamental level rather than eye for eye or tweet for tweet or shouting for shouting or any of the the ways that we often find ourselves reacting to triggers. So just taking the little lens of anger, and there are multiple other aspects of our personality, I think there's an opportunity through this self-reflection to start to see other ways in which we could have a healthier reaction to things that trigger us, that we can work on ourselves and use that to gain and drive a curiosity for greater understanding to resolve tensions and disagreements with others. And in terms of starting to make sense of our arena, 
if you can understand that the information that you come across when you're browsing the internet is essentially people uploading their sub-personalities that are maybe not fully integrated mm. into their lives. If you can understand that that's happening in the information sphere, maybe that also helps navigate the informational sphere. Because one of the things that I really want to talk to you about in this episode is why it's so hard to sense make now. And I think you've really just expounded upon why that is. If people are choosing to interact unconsciously, let's say, or mm. in, in a way that they're not bringing attention to how they're interacting online and that is then amplified by the tools and systems in our environment then as an observer of that as someone that's seeking truth or seeking authenticity and a way of interacting with society in a way that feels human it's very difficult to enter in if that's the way that people are interacting with the world and on an individual level when you're trying to navigate the arena when you're trying to make sense of why is this world so uncertain and so complex? Because the information ecology is so polluted with, let's say, our sub-personalities, on an individual level, it's easy to feel disenfranchised, to not be able to seek the truth, to not be able to feel effective in using the tools around us to further the commons, to achieve what we've set out to achieve individually as well as collectively. Yes, and it's hard doing this internal work. I often had quite a difficult relationship with my father when I was younger. He wanted order, wanted me to do what he wanted. He would sometimes say, you obey my orders without question, and you get a sense of a a kind of more disciplinary kind of framing. And I often felt that I wasn't seen, I wasn't heard. My emotional needs weren't being understood and nourished in the way that i wanted them to be. And often that would lead me to resentment. But when I was much older, I uh, went and stayed with my grandmother, who was a woman of the Second World War, very tough, working class upbringing, living in a place that was bombed heavily in the Second World War, in which there was a lot of poverty and just keeping yourself alive was the most important thing. And listening to the stories of how she brought up my father, I suddenly understood why he was the way he was. That was nothing to do with any intent to harm me or deny me or prevent me from having maybe the emotional love that I was seeking. It was just brought up in a way where he was probably denied many of those things. So he wasn't able to connect with that side of himself, which made him more like that with me. And the recognition of that enabled me to reframe my relationship with my father to one that was not one that resented that, but one that in some way pitied, someone that some way understood why it was that he was like that. I was able to get, if you like, underneath the manifestation of the thing that pissed me off (laughs) to understand its origins, to accept that and understand that. And then through that, saw that the way he was trying to express his love for me was trying to, through order and making sure I did the right things and protected me from doing things that could harm me, he was using order as his instrument of love, which was causing me a lot of pain because the other side of me wasn't being nourished. So I was able to completely reframe and re-understand 
where these triggering things that predominated my teenage years and learn from that. And the, the profound lesson I got from that when I contemplated that, because it's important to contemplate these things, is that we're not just the only ones who are dealing with this complexity, dealing with issues of childhood and the problems of life being thrown at us and feeling unsure and confused. Everyone is feeling like that. So everyone is coming to the table, if you like, with their particular experiences and anxieties and fears and triggers. And therefore, the discourse and what happens between us isn't because people necessarily hate us or disrespect us or don't care about us. Many of them are through the process of their own lives or the the way that life has shaped them have come to an understanding about what they need to do and say and act that seems to make sense. It's their way of extracting out of life the coping mechanisms that they've come up with that lead them to behave and say the things they do. And one way of viewing all of that is all the world is assholes until they prove they're good. And many people kind of have that frame. With the understanding I've got, I've flipped that around saying pretty much everyone is trying to be a good human being, but life has shaped and given them experiences and framings and ways of being that they've used as their coping mechanism that then make them do and say things that I can find quite annoying or piss me off. So with that knowledge, when I hear something or when somebody reacts to me or somebody does something in a way that makes me feel angry, pissed off, resentful, can I cut them just a little bit of slack? There may be some reasons why they're saying this that are not because they're full of malevolence and they're evil all the way down to the bottom, that that they've come up through their own fractal life through attempting to make sense of all these strange experiences, feeling equally lost potentially in this complex world. And they're struggling. And therefore, what they're saying is a result of struggle, not a result of malevolence. And that I might find that if I was to bite my lip and go a little deeper with this person, I might be able to get to some core shared understandings that could help me not to react to just what's said or done superficially, but actually get deeper to understanding why this person feels the way they do and how might, with that understanding, I engage them in a different way, lower down the stack, if you like, to engage them in and cultivate the potential for a relationship with them that might yield completely different set of outcomes. Now, of course, we can't do that with everyone. There's too many people in the world. But certainly those who are closest to us, our family and our friends. And I think most of us do cut a little slack with the people that we've invested time and effort with. We won't kick off with the first thing that they say, recognising that we have an off day or a bad day. But I think this disposition to seeing most people are struggling with these issues and saying things and doing things, not because they're bad people, but they've come to sense make or be possessed by the anxieties of their situation that lead them to do and say things is a good filter to start to apply as we engage with other people and just not to react so quickly and savagely as many of us are doing now. Because if you 
augment that to society wide, we start to see why we're kicking off at the level that we are and the inability to even engage in conversation across these ideological divides which are now appearing across the world. If we can't converse, if we can't talk to each other, if we can't suspend superficial scrapping to get underneath those things that we may share in common and understand each other's assumptions, understand and acknowledge there may be some truth in what the other thinks. They may have come to some conclusions that may not be wholly valid, but there's some truth into the things that gave them anxiety and led them to be unhappy with the way things are and to adopt a particular position. Let's get deeper. Let's share and explore mutual understandings and start to dissolve some of these, as I say, ideological divides that are so awash within our society at the moment. And this complexity and anxiety that we've been talking about just ratchets up the propensity to topple into that state of thinking. One of the things that I think is really important in that level of empathy that you're describing there, in that ability to look underneath the surface and really examine our relationships is that there is always a lesson there there's always a lesson to be found in how we relate to others and how we empathize with others and how we connect to them every interaction we have whether it's on an atomic level with just another person or whether it's more on a a large scale with institutions there's always going to be signal in the noise that we might not be aware of. One of the things that I think we need to do as agents and as individuals is practice discernment, the ability to say, well, hey, I, I might not get everything about this person or this idea, worldview even, but do you know what? I want to try and put myself in their shoes or the worldview's position. I want to put that lens on and I'm going to say to myself, what signal can I find in this? And even better, how do I separate what is relevant and what is irrelevant? How do I make that distinction? And I think right now we've been talking about how we're trying to figure out and make sense of this really changing, uncertain and complex world with the understanding that most probably that uncertainty, that complexity is going to accelerate, which is one of the main reasons why you and I wanted to have these conversations. It's like, well, how do we navigate this? And the way that you were talking about your relationship there really made me think, well, how do we figure out the signal and the noise in our arena as we navigate it? Because I think that's one of the main things that's changing now is that our environment is becoming more and more and more difficult to make sense of. Yes, because as we've said, the the world is increasingly complex. It's harder to find a meaningful place in it for ourselves. So we're sort of grasping often to find a deeper meaning in, in our lives beyond the just routines and habits that we undertake every day. There's a sense in which most people construct some form of narrative or worldview, you called it that, I think that's right, as to what's going on. It seems that our brains do need some kind of certainty. And when there's lots of uncertainty around us, we get anxious and we seem to seek out something that we can hold on to that gives us a sense of certainty. And one of the interesting things, I think we may have covered this before about politics writ large, is that if the world becomes so complex and so much is changing and the fundamental bedrocks on which we 
assumed were solid, but no longer seem to be. And we're seeing that around the world in terms of often relationships becoming shorter, job security becoming less, financial futures are looking more difficult for many people. Everywhere you look around, everything seems to be more complicated and less stable. And it can be overwhelming to try and make sense of all that and do all the necessary analysis to understand what is going on and come to conclusions that have been well thought through, that are evidence-based and all the rest of it. It's just beyond most people, if not everyone, to do that. One of the interesting observations about politics is that once you get to a point where it becomes overwhelming, your ability to logically and rationally build from the bottom up an understanding and a position on things becomes increasingly untenable. And for many people, people give up. I think I've heard the time that Daniel Schmachtenberg has used, which is epistemic nihilism. (laughs) The idea that it's impossible to make sense of stuff. So what happens to your brain and your thought process when you can't make sense of stuff through logically and rationally using evidence to construct a, a well thought out position? You tend to gravitate to what feels right. And what feels right offers the opportunity for a narrative or a charismatic person with great rhetoric or a simple ideology that can be used to explain something which emotionally kind of feels right, even though all the analysis of the evidence base for that might be somewhat suspect. (laughs) It feels right, but now I've got something to hold on to. And it's giving me some certainty in an uncertain world. So I'm not going to hold on to that because it feels right. And this ideology or this perspective or this worldview will often come packaged with a set of supporting beliefs or constructs that now I adopt as my own. But they're not necessarily built from knowledge and fact. They're built because they seem to hold together the worldview that gives me certainty or some certainty and therefore comfort that at least I've got something to hang on to that I can believe in. And of course, when someone comes along and challenges you and tries to use rational evidence to challenge an idea that you are emotionally attached to, (laughs) the first thing you do is not engage them with curiosity on the evidence that they've raised. You reject even the notion of evidence because it's an attack on something that's held as an emotional belief. And therefore, you do not want to get into an intellectual fact-based discussion that will challenge something that is incredibly important for you because it's how you make sense of the world and what you hold on to. And to undermine that structure and have it collapse in on yourself is to leave you bereft and lost and in chaos, the very uncomfortable thing you want to avoid. So if people are collapsing into these worldviews for reasons a bit feels right rather than it's actually right, it means that discourse and sense-making is now confused by this layer of emotionally driven, often attached to an ideology or worldview, which then people will seek to defend or go on the attack for if they they feel passionately about it. So sense-making needs to recognize in some sense that many of us are finding ourselves falling into these positions for the reasons I've described. And therefore, there is almost a game and an enactment, a performance of attacking or defending, which is 
attacking or defending based from a position of a worldview that feels right, that holds my psyche together as a sense of how the world works and where I fit in it, and that I can often attach myself to to give me more meaning in life, etc. So some of the superficial conversation or dialogue or attempt at dialogue will founder because what's coming out of people's mouths are amplifying or reflecting the ideology and the set of beliefs that hold it all together to give people that supportive structure. But as you rightly point out, signal and noise, why do people hold these positions so passionately? There must be something about it that attracted them in the first place. There must be some underlying contribution of thoughts and ideas that had a grip on people. And quite often when you unpack even people espousing more extreme points of views or ideologies, there's usually something at the core of that that represents something quite important, that there is something going on in the world that disadvantages a particular community or has done historically or continues to do so or represents a part of the story of injustice being wrought upon a certain group or a certain part of society. And therefore, amongst all the noise, (laughs) there is some signal. And trying to understand what that signal is gives you an insight as to what the underlying generator of this particular worldview and ideology, which is being espoused in all these extreme ways, and gives, like we were saying before, the potential to engage with people at the source of what drives their thinking rather than the superficial expression of it, which can be often quite uh, elaborate or extreme or vitriolic. So I think therein lies the basis of the potential to understand how to build bridges and dialogue between what otherwise might be seemingly unreachable or intractable conversations that just don't seem to or can't seem to be had. So it's difficult. It is difficult. And this is something we as a society are going to have to wrestle with, that the disposition for people to fall into worldviews that feel like they give emotional comfort as a bulwark to dealing with the complexity of the world leaves us open to falling into ideological conflict or identity politics or whatever manifestation there might be. And obstruct the potential for deep and important conversations that bridge these things that might reveal to us what a shared future might look like that can incorporate the base and core needs that are expressed underlying all these particular ideological perspectives. So there is in there the potential for thinking how we might go about it. The practicalities of that can be often quite difficult because you walk into a Twitter storm or whatever, (laughs) you like to come out with a a few bruises along the way and and find yourself swept up into the desire to join in and administer your outrage to the conversation to feel better in the moment. But as I said earlier, this is one of the reasons I've personally refrained from trying to use social media to lash out. If I do use social media, it's usually to point people to something interesting or some deeper observation that might cause people to pause and reflect. Trying to sow seeds to get people to think more deeply or to consider something that they might not consider before. And one of the things that's 
quite useful to make sure that you don't find yourself in the same illusionary worldview filter bubble because social media, as we've discussed in previous episodes, will serve you up the things that you seem to be interested in and therefore your worldview will be reinforced by what's being served up to you and that filter bubble problem is a great challenge is to actively seek out sources of information and media outlets or whatever it might be that represent the opposite of what you think to see how these worldviews where are they coming from how do they talk about it what might be the underlying valid reasons and things that people care about that are the generator function for this kind of worldview to make sure that I myself or anyone listening to this don't find themselves thinking that they are the broad-minded reasonable person everyone else is a nutter to find that I'm actually biased myself through my own filter bubble and that there are other perspectives that exist or even if I knew they exist I hadn't fully appreciated the value and richness and contribution of those so that I myself can draw from a wider set of perspectives, a deeper understanding of what matters to people and through that be able to think and contribute personally to bridge building rather than fence building or wall building. The ability to hold multiple perspectives that differ simultaneously is something that I would aspire to be able to do I think it's a first step in trying to make sense of the world around us to have that humility to say well the frame of reference that I have is subject to being wrong at times and I want to be able to understand various perspectives take ideas play around with them in my mind see if they fit my understanding and conception of reality accept what I think is the signal and reject the noise is the way that we want to at least the way that I see us participating in the arena. And one of the things that you said, which I found really interesting, is that people fall into certain worldviews and ways of seeing the world as a way of avoiding uncertainty. Mm. But we're in a world that is uncertain and is complex, and you can't switch off from that. To make a comparison to an organization or a business, because someone like a blockbuster wasn't prepared to confront the uncertainty of a changing world, they never thought about sending DVDs out through the mail initially or digitizing their catalog. And as a result of that, that business wasn't able to survive. It's the same on an individual level. There's only so long that you can hold a worldview that is built on false premises before that world changes, the arena changes around you and that worldview collapses and other things emerge. So the ability to go into that I'm going to use what you were saying earlier, to go into that coliseum of demented sub-personalities on Twitter or different news sources and just wander through all of these alien worlds and really mm. confront different perspectives is it is a, just a, a pathway forwards for understanding the world that we're in and being comfortable with the fact that it is uncertain, it is complex, and there isn't necessarily straightforward answers. The, the other image that came into my mind, and I have no idea why this image came into my mind, is almost like you're hunting for the infinity stones in, in every perspective. I know that's a cheesy Marvel reference, but it's almost like, okay, I'm going to go into this worldview that I can't comprehend. It just seems like noise to me, seems crazy. And I'm going to be like, well, what is that? What is that infinity stone? What is that information within that that is actually relevant? What's that piece of the puzzle? What am I missing that I'm not seeing? Because it's easy to be dismissive of different people's perspectives, but what we need now more than ever if we understand that the world is going to continue to become 
increasingly complex and uncertain with a plurality of different ways of seeing the world is the ability to find the signal, is the ability to build those bridges. And I think that that will enable us to feel more comfortable in uncertainty. To say, hey, well, everyone's got a different view on things. Everyone is approaching and trying to make sense of the world in their own ways. Yes, as well as worldviews, you rightly point out that uh, as the world is becoming more complex, it's the ability, well, the importance of investigating, being curious and inhabiting different perspectives to draw from them a kind of collective wisdom that might inform the right action, I think is really, really important. But it also raises, as you rightly pointed out, with thinking about blockbusters, this sense of if we are in a world that's changing and a world that's changing in complexity, (laughs) in in a complex way, what does this mean for people of responsibility and authority? This could be parents or it could be leaders. One of the interesting things coming out of psychology and psychoanalysis is that when people not only have their own kind of accountability to themselves and their own sense making but they're also responsible for others maybe as a parent or maybe as a leader there is a sense in which that which we've always done is being brought into question by changing circumstances and we need to do something new but what's happening around us is complex and complicated and it's not clear what we should do next and anyone in a position of responsibility is going to feel anxious because i now am accountable for this family my children or this organization or this department and things are changing around me that i don't fully understand so what psychology and psychoanalysis have said about anxiety is that once you feel that sense of anxiety it activates as we know the limbic system the sort of reptilian brain which is the fight or flight or freeze response and part of that activation of that part of the brain is to deactivate or repress the cognitive functions of your brain so you'd think less and you're basically seeking certainty because you have to do something because something is changing and the default position when you're in a position of leadership, is often to cling to that which you believe before ever harder to console yourself against the changes that seem to be erupting around you. So it's very easy for people to double down on the old ways of doing things, whether it's what my parents taught me about parenting or what I learned or what I thought parenting was, I will double down on in the face of changing circumstance and things not quite working. I will not seek to understand these different perspectives to get wiser about it because that takes me away from my former solid understanding of what being a parent is and that act of transformation. Something has to die to be reborn and new and the act of something dying some part of my knowledge, some part of my worldview on this has to be disassembled, break down, burn away, <laughs> die, to be reborn with something new. There's a, there's a trough that you need to go through to come out the other side. And that can be extremely scary for any people in position of leadership. So this a tendency to double down is often what happens. So people in positions of leadership, whether it's family, whether it's institution, whether it's business, politics, have not only to hold the uncertainty that they feel 
which authority invested in them, you know, they're meant to know what to do. Now they don't know what to do. Can they hold that uncertainty? Because there needs to be a space to investigate other perspectives. And maybe those other perspectives are partially understood and need to be fully revealed before it's the right time to make a decision of the next course of action. So having the patience to live with uncertainty, to hold it while different perspectives are evaluated and a new way of thinking synthesized is really difficult because you're not only holding it for yourself, you're actually holding it for others who depend upon you. And they themselves are anxious. They're looking for you for definitive answers. So a leader needs to hold the uncertainty, not just of themselves, but of the entire team. And that requires a strong enough psyche to hold that on behalf of everyone because it's only in the space of letting go of the old to investigate be curious about the potential new which could involve investigating multiple perspectives to do that work to explore them to bring that knowledge back to synthesize it and out of that emerge something that might be the next course of action takes time, takes courage, takes bravery, and will require a sense of strength to go through that process, knowing that you're being judged by those around you, or people are seeking comfort from you. So the ability to go through that process and carry people through with you, that journey to investigate, to synthesize, to come up with something new, to take the family forward or the organization forward is something that's super important because, as we talked about in previous conversations, the world that we're inhabiting, whether it's the social world, the family world, the business world, the institutional world, the political world, is likely to change more quickly and more rapidly and more fundamentally in the coming decades than it's ever done in human history. This is the new reality that we will be living with. So we need psychologically, I think, to really think seriously about how we step up our ability to engage in new ways with this complexity in some of the ways I've just been outlining. I think this is a, a really important thing for ourselves individually and for people in responsibility in particular to engage with. Yeah. And I think, although it does sound almost anxiety inducing to be like, wow, we're going to be in the unknown and the uncertain and we're going to hold that space. There's something about stepping into the undefined and trying to navigate that, which is actually a part of engaging with life. Yeah. If you look at all of the work that's been done about getting into the state of flow, for example, if you aren't being stimulated enough, you become bored. And if you get overstimulated, you become anxious. But it's actually in the middle of those two states of having too much uncertainty and too much, let's say, normality. Between those two is where you feel the most engaged with life, where you feel the most sense of meaning. I remember watching an episode of John Vivekis. Mm. podcast series awakening from the meaning crisis and he said exactly that when they ask people how often do you find yourself in the state of flow the people that would answer they would find themselves in the state of flow more often also had a high sense of meaning in life so now we're entering this world that's uncertain and complex 
And for many reasons, it feels overwhelming. If we can find out how to be in an uncertain, complex world and thrive from that, so flipping it completely on its head, not just saying, oh, you know, we're just going to have to deal with this in some way, actually saying, okay, this is a way for me to be intensely engaged with life. It's to synthesize new ideas. It's to forge a path. It's to create the new from what we've got. There's something intensely optimistic about that and really exciting. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. A metaphor springs to mind. The surfer surfing the new wave as it comes in. Each wave is novel and new and calls upon you to summon up all that you know and all that you can do and engage with a new emerging reality that's hitting you or coming at you at that moment. And the act of summoning up your knowledge, your wisdom, your physical prowess, <laughs> your ability to surf on the edge of what you can do with what nature's serving you up as in terms of something new, is that thrill of transcending, moving beyond that which I've done before to encounter and master something new. And to be able to do that in an alive, aware sense is this sense of being in flow, the sense of taking on something new and transcending it and conquering it. But you know, another way of framing this whole conversation about change is not necessarily, oh my God, everything is changing. This is so bad. This is so anxiety producing. We're going to have to live in a world steeped with anxiety and cortisol and we're all going to grow gray earlier and become all sort of super ideological and triggered by everything. No, I think there's a way that you rightly point to of embracing this as a real moment of opportunity. Our habits and routines and practices and performances can often be one steeped in old ideas that we just perform and do every day. And there's a degree of comfort and certainty in that. But the fact that life does always change, the world is also changing more rapidly by virtue of the new tools and technologies and connectivity that we as mankind are producing in the world is producing more novelty, more new contexts are arising. And there's an opportunity for us to step into and conquer the unknown, is to look at these frontiers and say, I don't know how we go beyond here, but I'm going to step into the unknown <laughs> to try and explore it, understand it, bring back the gold, if you Think about that. This is a common element of mythological stories in the past about the adventurer who leaves the tribe and goes to explore new lands and brings back either gold or riches or new knowledge that then expand the wisdom and capabilities of the tribe. This mythological archetype, if you like, that's how we've progressed from living in tribal groups in the savannah of Africa to the 21st century civilization we have now. So this, this isn't something we haven't done before. The ability to engage, be curious, to explore the unknown, understand it and make it become known, <laughs> expands us as individuals and as society. And therefore, there's an opportunity now to go passionately and curiously into explore mode in a way that we've never done before. And arguably, as we've been saying, the levels of change that we're going to see ripple out into the arena calls upon us to get our exploring boots on, <laughs> to go and find 
what are these new worlds and changes that are erupting around us? What does it mean? What can we learn from that? And what should we collectively do in response to that? For those who are curious, those who seek to earnestly, not just to use the change to exploit, but use the change to create value for ourselves and for others and for the world at large, there's really great opportunities to be at the frontiers of trying to make sense of what's happening, what's coming, what does this mean, and how do we harness and capture that in ways that are fruitful and value-creating for how we take ourselves forward as conscious agents to inhabit and know how to inhabit this world and to inhabit in a way that is nourishing and fruitful for ourselves, but also ways in which we can collectively evolve and inhabit that from the perspective of harnessing that to create a richer and better arena. To tie this together, I think that being in the unknown within limits, not going too extreme into the unknown, but let's say being in the unknown, being just outside of your comfort zone into an area that you don't know yet, is a place where you can feel empowered. It's a place where you can be excited and develop and grow. But most importantly, it's where you can consciously, actively participate in the arena. It's where you have a chance to shape and to put yourself into the world. There is a sense of meaning to be found in crossing that threshold from the comfortable into the place of the unknown. And I think that that, for me, feels like a good place for us to wrap up this show and let people think about that a little bit. I mean, some of the things that I would say to you listening is, what are some of the ways that you can make sense of the world by becoming cognitively flexible? We we mentioned a, a guy called Daniel Schmachtenberg already on the show, Andy mentioned him. And he mentioned when you're trying to make sense of different worldviews to generate different narrative landscapes, to go, as Andy was saying, and switch your news sources for a week, go and understand someone else's perspective completely. The other thing I would say, which I think I want to be thinking about this week, is how else do we use metaphors to make sense of our world? Because Andy just said a really great one, which is the surfing analogy, or being adventurous, exploring the unknown. There's so many adventure metaphors that you can think about when it comes to exploring the unknown territory of the world. So they're the kind of things that I would say really come to my mind in this episode. Is there anything that you would say, Andy, that you're like, oh yeah, that really stuck out for me? Yeah, no, I I think what you just covered is really important. I think one thing I would just add to that is we've been talking about how the desire for certainty appeals to us so much. We want to be right. We want to have a worldview that seems to make sense and that there is psychological temptations to become over certain on certain things because it kind of feels right. Maybe it is right in some respect. But I just caution everyone to have some kind of humility with with regards to how right anyone feels they are or can ever be. Because I'm sure in a hundred years' time, when historians look back at this time, they will be laughing a little bit about how naive and stupid we were to think X, Y, and Z and how human society has moved on the whole level. And history has told us that ideas evolve, knowledge as it's gained, renders old ways of seeing the world often less valid and often quite naive. And we just happen to be in a moment of time where it's our turn to do the thinking. So be curious. Don't hold on and be too certain. Because the one thing that we can be certain about is uncertainty, (laughs) about change. 
and life for ourselves and for society writ large. One could think of it like this. It's, it's not just about being. It's also about becoming. So as the world changes, we have to become something else. And implied within that is perpetual change, a kind of humility and humbleness about what we can know for certain and a curiosity about what lies beyond. And by being curious, by pushing the boundaries a little bit to understand and seek other perspectives, we can grow in our own knowledge, our own wisdom. And with that knowledge and wisdom, we can start to bring change to our own lives and to the arena which we're part of such that we can become something better than we are now. And it needs that humility and that curiosity, that passion, that care to enable us to continue on this journey of ever-changing change. Embrace this moment. It's a chance for us all to do something different and special. And that's the end of episode five. I really love that image of the surfer that Andy brought up at the end. Things can feel overwhelming at times. Like there's so much noise and not enough signal. It's hard to make sense of the world around us. It's easy to feel like there's no point in even trying to figure things out. But as complexity and change continue to ramp up and make things more complicated, there's also a greater opportunity to explore new possibilities and find meaning in surfing the waves of the new arena. So the question is, what waves are you going to surf? As always, we put all the links in the show notes of the people and ideas that we discussed on this episode. My favourite link that we've added is the War on Sensemaking series with Daniel Schmachtenberger, which is a really nice deep dive into the subject that we dipped into today. Finally, two other things to ponder over until the next episode that really stuck out to me when I re-listened to the show. What might be some of the other ways of finding signal in the noise in our arenas as we try to navigate them? How might we do that? And how might we hold the uncertainty that we need to hold for others and the people around us? It might feel like there are more questions being raised than answers being given on the show, but that's intentional. The aim of Meta Perspective is to get us all thinking and discussing the challenges of this moment. And we'd love to hear your thoughts and understand your perspective on the things we've brought up during the episode. How do you see things? What did we miss? Where should we dive deeper? you can let us know by pinging us an email. Let's wrap this up. Thank you for being part of this journey and dedicating your time and attention to the show. If you like what we're doing and you want to support us, the best way is to subscribe to the show and even more importantly, share the episode with your friends so we can bring more people into the conversation. Okay, until the next time, take care.